All right, and now this picture of me <laughs> when I was seven years old at Columbia Park Elementary School. <laughs> so, as I was saying, this is Christine Kim, and um, these are my friends um, uh, Sunghee, Tanya, Marjorie, and John. And um, at the time, this was 1979. And there were um, tons of Koreans who were immigrating to the D.C. area. Um, so I remember at Columbia Park, there was like lots of Korean kids and lots of black kids. Um, and then there was sort of like the occasional white person like, like John. And I remember as a kid, um, I used to love um, during recess, during recess, all the little black girls would go down to the playground and they would start doing these cheers that I loved. And you can't get the full effect because I'm sitting. But I, I remember so many of those cheers, like very clearly in my mind. So one of them went like this. It went like this. It went, L-O-V-E, love, L-O-V-E. L-O-V-E, love, L-O-V-E. Christine's my name and love is my game. I've got the boys on my mind. Taurus is my son. And who blows your mind? My mommy blows my mind. Hit it. Uh, 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 uh. All right. Uh, 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 uh. Hit it. Anyways, and then it goes on for several more <laughs> stances after that. There's so many of them that I still remember. And in that moment, I remember there was no difference in my mind as a child between me and those little girls on the playground. And it struck me um, that like children are not born racist. You know, they, they have such an innocence and purity with which they look at one another. And that's how I was as a child, just very happy and carefree. And then um, in third grade, my, my family moved to a nicer suburb and I ended up going to this predominantly white elementary school called Lamont. And almost immediately, I started getting picked on and bullied and called racial slurs. And that happy and carefree little Christine just began to shrink and die inside. And at a very young age, um, two things started to happen. One, with white people, I began to feel like I was inferior. You know, just somehow unconsciously in my mind, I began to feel like I was inferior. And I shared even a few weeks ago about how it took me into adulthood to even be able to talk to a white person. And I think of all those little black girls that I was friends with at that time. And I shared how Korean um, communities have often had tensions with the black community. A lot of our, my dad's church members had stores, grocery stores, dry cleaners in Baltimore and in DC. And what ended up happening is that that fear, that fear of black people just started forming in my heart. And gradually, more and more, there was greater and greater and greater separation and division. Mother Teresa said that today, if we have no peace, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. Today, if we have no peace, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. That man, that woman, that child is my brother or my sister. So those white kids were never taught that I belong to them and that they belong to me. 
Somewhere along the way, the Korean community forgot that the black, our black brothers and sisters, belong to us and we to them. That white police officer forgot that he belonged to George Floyd and George Floyd belonged to him. I'm gonna ask Rich to put up um, that slide about white supremacy. So my friend, um, my friend Rich, um, he tweeted this the other day, he said, good morning. White supremacy is fundamentally not about the KKK in hoods. I would say as an aside, it includes that, but it's not fundamentally about that. It's the noxious, insidious, and unconscious ways that white experience, perspective, and power is internalized, normalized, prioritized, and systematized. Enjoy your day. <laughs> I mean, that, that, um, that indicts all of us, doesn't it? Right? The noxious, insidious, unconscious ways that white experience, perspective, and power is internalized, normalized, prioritized, and systematized. And often it's, it's, it's too easy to let ourselves off the hook when it comes to white supremacy. Because when you put it like this, you realize that you don't even have to be white in order to buy into white supremacy. And I began to buy into white supremacy the day that I started feeling inferior to white people. And you see that across the board. And we cannot internalize this in our hearts and still belong to each other. The Apostle Paul writes in our epistle reading, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us, God proves his love for us in that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. While we still were sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul knows what he's talking about because Paul was the oppressor. Paul was hunting down the followers of Jesus, persecuting them, killing them. The book of Acts tells us that he was breathing out murderous threats against the Christians. And Jesus came and he took this killer and knocked him off his horse and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says that Saul, when you persecute the other, you're persecuting me. And Paul did not deserve mercy. He was an enemy of God, alienated from him, far from him. Christ cast his lot with the sinners. He became one of us, scripture tells us, and he spilled his precious blood for us in order to bring us to God. Peter writes, you have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. And that's why the Bible calls Christ our brother, 
the author of Hebrews says, that since therefore the children, that's us, share flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, he himself likewise shared the same thing so that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free all those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. But he became like one of us, his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God. Because he did that, because he spilled his precious blood for us, it says in Ephesians that he became our peace and that in his body he made these two hostile groups one. All these polarized and divided groups, he destroyed the dividing wall of hostility between us so that he would, could create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, making peace between us and to reconcile all these different groups to God in one body through the cross. And he says, putting to death the hostility through it. He's saying he came to set us free from hatred, from hostility. He put that to death in order to make us his brothers and sisters, which then makes us one another's brothers and sisters, which means ultimately that we belong to one another. We are kin, not us and them, but only us. And that's why now is this moment in our country where we need to repent for the ways in which we turned our backs on our kin, our black brothers and sisters. Why we need to lament and feel that pain and take those steps to say once again to them, you belong to us and we belong to you. We are one. The writer Greg Boyd says that the Christian's job is to agree with God that every person you meet was worth Jesus dying for. I'm gonna say that again. The Christian's job is to agree with God that every person you meet was worth Jesus dying for. So just think about that for a moment. Aren't there a lot of people that you meet that you don't like, you don't agree with them, you don't approve of their opinions or their social or political positions or theological positions. And in, in, in your mind, you're thinking to yourself, they are not worth Jesus dying for. And what the cross does is it confronts us with the hostility in our hearts and says, there's no place for that in the kingdom of God. There's no place in the new family of God for that kind of hostility to live in your heart. It's easy to say, and it's really hard to do. So I picked up um, last week Dr. King's book, Strength to Love. And one of the chapters is entitled, Loving Your Enemies. And if the cross had a tagline, it would be this, love your enemies, love the other, however you define that. And you're reading Dr. King, and especially reading that book, it's like reading something from another world. You know, it's as if you lived your whole life just breathing in this toxic air and suddenly you breathe this fresh air. It's so different, so foreign, so countercultural, and yet it resonates so deeply because it's the kingdom of God. It's about kinship with each other. And Dr. King just lived and taught what he learned from the one that he follows, Jesus. Love your enemies, because that's what Christ did. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he writes in that chapter, he says, far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, the command to love one's enemies 
is an absolute necessity for our survival. Love, even for enemies, is the key to the solution of the problems of our world. Jesus is not an impractical realist, just as King wasn't. He is the practical realist. We never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. We get rid of an enemy by getting rid of enmity. By its very nature, hate destroys and tears down. And by its very nature, love creates and builds up. Love transformed by redemptive power. And here's what's just true. Love and hate cannot coexist in one heart. At one point, one is going to win out over the other. And love doesn't mean that we don't get angry. In fact, we get angry because we love. If you've ever read Letter from a Birmingham Jail, it's one of the most powerful pieces of writing that you will ever read. But it's not hateful. You know, you hear King's anger and his grief because he loves. He isn't hostile, he isn't condescending, but he talks to them as though they are his brothers. Because he sees them, because of Jesus as his kin, he calls them out by saying, we were made for more than this. We're made for more than this. And you see this in Matthew 9, right? Jesus summons his 12 disciples. He gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, cure out every disease and every sickness. He sends them on this mission. And he names these 12 apostles. There's Simon, Peter. There's his brother, Andrew. There's James and John, the sons of Zebedee. There's Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the the Canaanian, you know, also known as Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. I mean, what a motley crew of disciples this is. The other day, um, Melissa sent me this quote from a Canadian Anglican priest who was also gay. And someone asked him on Twitter, how can you feel at home in a church that's so divided between conservative and let's say progressive factions? And we could really apply this to any group, ethnic groups, political groups, social groups. And this priest responded by saying this. He said, by remembering that when God came to dwell among us, God made a home among conservatives and progressives and everyone in between. Jesus called a zealot who wanted to destroy Rome and a tax collector who worked for Rome. The church is always bigger than any one faction. It has to be. And you see that when we get into the book of Acts, the church grows even more diverse, ethnically, racially, socially, politically. The primary fruit of the gospel is this miraculous new family of God that includes both the oppressed and the oppressor. We are kin. The oppressor needs to repent. The oppressed need to be seen and held in solidarity with us and reminded, reminded that they belong to us and we belong to them. And that miracle is ultimately our witness to the world. It's hard, yet God, may you make it so. By the grace of God, by the love of God, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, may it be so. God, do it among us. Let it start here at St. Peter's. Let love triumph over hate every single time and watch the world stand back in awe at what they see and say, look at how they loved each other. Let, let it begin in our own hearts, brothers and sisters. Amen.